We live in a highly visual culture today, a time where uh, people are accessing all sorts of means and methods to alter their physical appearance. Uh, people are going in droves, it seems, at a younger age uh, to do things to improve their looks. And it's not just something that affects women. Uh, it's interesting to see that this desire for the body beautiful was something reflected in the Barbie movie because it wasn't just the Barbies that were concerned with this, it was also the Kens. But unless some people in our society are naming the detrimental effect of this phenomenon, and we see that in the fact that our, our Australian of the Year uh, that was nominated and uh, received that award is a body positive activist. And uh, she's saying uh, that this uh, kind of drive uh, for beauty, uh, it's not that beauty is actually the problem, it's just when it becomes ultimate that it is toxic to the soul. And uh, particularly for young people that spend a lot of their time and energy uh, focusing on that, uh, it seems to be a bit of a brain drain because it takes away their ability to invest in other things, um, perhaps uh, that might uh, put them uh, more in the ready to be uh, people who can contribute in different ways and positive. 
cornering of brain power takes you away. And in our passage today, we're reminded that Moses had a radiance because of his face-to-face -face encounter with God, but it passed away over time. And we're told that because of Jesus, an ever-increasing radiance, one that will never fade away for the hours, and it comes by turning to the Lord, and it grows through what we think about, what we set our minds on, a radiance that results in the steady gaze of the soul. In other words, and I said this in the passage, it happens through contemplation. So what Jesus has opened up to us is the same sort of face-to-face -face encounter with God like Moses had, uh, but instead of a radiance that fades away, ours has the potential to be dialed up. And I don't know how you feel when you hear those words. Uh, you might say to me, well, look, that just sort of sounds a little pie in the sky, this idea that I can have a face-to-face -face encounter with God, and, uh, and I understand that feeling. But I'm convinced that this passage holds for us some good news. And by putting the lives of Moses and Jesus side by side, we can discover something essential about our humanity, what we need, what we lack, and some good news of how to fix it. Because Jesus has not only achieved something great for us, but he gives us something practical we can sink our teeth into, something he knew and practiced that makes all the difference to our lived experience of God, and that is the way of the contemplative life. But my friends, let's be clear. The point is not to seek radiance. Because if you remember the story of Moses, Moses' face became radiant after spending time in face-to-face uh, communion with the God of Israel up on the mountain of God after the people had been led out of uh, slavery from Egypt. But initially, Moses had no idea that that 40-day conversation was going to impact his appearance so much. As he made his way down the mountain, holding the two stone tablets with those Ten Commandments that the finger of God had written on, the scriptures tell us, and I quote, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Now, you'd think that that luminosity could have been quite handy in the desert for people in the dark, right? But it seems they weren't really into it. They didn't appreciate it. In fact, it really freaked them out. It freaked them out so much that Moses had to wear a veil to cover his face. And this didn't happen just once, it happened again and again as Moses would go up to meet with God and his face would be radiant, he'd put the veil on and then the radiance would fade. But he was really not conscious of it. His attention was elsewhere. His attention was on the glory of God. And you see, here's the thing. When a person's attention is arrested by something so utterly glorious, they cannot help but be transformed. Now it's important for us to go back in the story because this is not a new situation for Moses. This is not his first face-to-face -face encounter with God. And the reason we need to go back is, is because what happened in that first encounter really sets him up for these ongoing chit-chats with the Almighty. Years before the dramatic events of the Exodus, 
And uh, if you may know the story or you may not know the story, uh, if you want to refresh your memory, you can go back and read in Exodus 6 to 12. But essentially, it's a rather terrifying story of how God's relentless, fierce love for his people uh, meant that he prized them out of the grip of, of the oppressors, the Egyptian oppressors. But before any of, all, any of this had happened, Moses had already had an encounter with God. Living in obscurity, far from Egypt, after running away and having killed an Egyptian, minding some sheep for his father-in-law, he sees a tree on fire. There's something strange about it. Actually, it's not so much that the tree is strange, it's the fire that's unusual because it had completely engulfed the tree that wasn't destroying it. And this, I think, is where the story touches something deep about our humanity. Because you see, the scriptures tell us that this phenomenon, this fire that engulfs without destroying, is the manifestation of God himself. And I think the point is this. Moses is faced with the decision of whether to turn aside and look at the thing we are all looking for. The thing we are all looking for is a fire that can engulf us without distress. You see, you and I, all of us, we are essentially desiring creatures. All of us want to know the bliss of coming undone before a great passion that somehow keeps us intact at the same time and more alive than ever. All of us want a great love to surrender to, one desire worth burning for. And God is the only fire that can engulf us without destroying us. And that moment for Moses, it's a little bit like the tennis ball teetering on the edge of the net that could go either way. And when he decides to turn and look, his whole life is reorganised around God's reality. His identity changes. His life takes on a new meaning and a new purpose. And this is what happens when you surrender yourself to the living God. So, friends, if you see a burning bush that's not burning up, all I can say is beware. Because when passion for God takes hold of you, it is going to rearrange you. And this willingness to turn aside and look is the hallmark of the contemporary tradition. Now, for the Israelites, the Exodus was a dramatic event. But I think as far as they were concerned, getting out of Egypt wasn't the end of their woes. It must have felt like running out of a crazy maze with someone chasing you and then jumping onto a wild roller coaster ride. Because as soon as they escape the Pharaoh, uh, they're already complaining to Moses that they can't do this. It's too hard. They're stuck between the army and the sea. They're in the desert without food. They want to go back. They want to get off this ride. And Moses' job as leader is to teach them to surrender and trust God, to trust that this wild ride is going to get them to the promised land. All they need to do is trust the process. 
keep their hands inside the vehicle at all times. And the reason all this is so important is that in the same way that Moses' face radiates with the glory of God, they were supposed to be a people who were defined by this surrender to this same fire, this fire that engulfs without destroying, so that they too could radiate the glory of God to the world. And you know, as their leader, Moses actually does a pretty good job of this, keeping them in line in between all of those face-to-face meetings with God. Uh, And at different times, he deals with their complaints, he intercedes for them. After they build the golden calf to worship in the hope that it's going to get them off this ride, he intercedes for them. Most of all, his job is to model this fully surrendered life and trust to God, keeping his hands inside the vehicle at all times, instead of trying to take matters into his own hands. But here's the sad thing about Moses. After a really impressive run, he fell over at the last hurdle. And you may know the story, or you may not. But in the end, it seemed he couldn't stay so perfectly surrendered to the fire of his desire. He disobeyed God's instructions. And instead of speaking to the rock, the water, as God had commanded him to do, he spoke aggressively to the people. And he struck the rock twice. And I read that and I feel like it's so pedantic and unfair because he'd been so faithful that he gets picked at the last post. And although his relationship with God continues, he's not allowed to enter the promised land with the people. I guess he just couldn't keep his hands inside the vehicle any longer. And I think to myself, well, what hope have I got keeping my arms inside the vehicle? Because compared to Moses, I feel like I'm an octopus in a string bag. You know, my tentacles slip out to grip onto something else other than God to make me feel like I've got worth or give me a sense of peace or a sense of control. And then I'm reminded of the condition that all of us share, and it's our inability to stay surrendered to the one fire we were made for. Instead, All of us are susceptible to a fascination with lesser flames. Now, it may not be an obsession for the body beautiful, but all of us have something prone to reward something good or bad that binds for our ultimate allegiance and trust. And if you remember, this in the garden where everything started to go wrong for us in this way, Succumbing to temptation has always been a case of misdirected desire, and our ancestors had a fatal case of it. Adam and Eve exchanged the fire of surrender to God for the lesser flame of their own autonomy. And this fascination for lesser flames has been passed down the human race from parents to children like an inherited disease. Now, it's not that these flames are bad things necessarily. They can be good things. But when good things become ultimate, they cause us to turn in on ourselves, away from God and away from others, eventually, in a way that will suck the life out of us. But this brings us to the good thing. 
Jesus came to relive the story of Israel. His life started to show patterns of Israel's history, the way he moved about, about the land. And he realises that he's called to take that wild roller coaster ride again and lead the people of God to the real promised land, the eternal kingdom of heaven. And he's got to do it by living in full surrender to the fire, that same fire that warmed Moses' face. But this time, unlike Moses, he keeps his hands in the vehicle at all times. He surrenders in obedience to his passion for God. And it's his constant practice of coming before the presence of God in prayer that uh, helps him hold on to the fire again and again. He spends 40 days and nights in prayer in the desert temptation so that he can face all the moments he will face on the cross. And he has victory then as he does on the cross. When his body is rightly screaming for relief, he resists taking matters in his own hands, just as he did on the cross. When he's taunted to prove that he's the Son of God and do something spectacular, he resists taking matters into his own hands, just as he would do on the cross. And when a shortcut is offered to achieve power over the world, instead of taking the devil's offer, on the cross he goes willingly into a scary freefall of death. And he resists taking matters into his own hands. Instead, he surrenders himself to the one desire worthy of his full allegiance. God, the only fire that engulfs us without destroying. Now Moses communed with God face to face, and this made him radiant, but we read in our reading that he faded away because Moses, like all of us, could not sustain his love for God perfectly. In the end, no one can hold out against the fascination of these lesser flames, whatever they may be. No one, that is, except for Jesus. And it's because of his full surrender that he's the perfect radiance of God. Jesus is the tree that's ablaze with the glory of God, but not devoured. He is the sign that stands before the whole world as God's invitation to turn aside and look. And Jesus invites us to come as we are, whether we're a Moses or an octopus in a string bag. He's the one who kept his arms inside the vehicle instead of taking matters into his own hands. And now everyone who puts their trust in him, to them he gives himself as the way to the Father. And to see Jesus face to face is to see the Father face to face. So beloved, this is the freedom and this is the invitation and we enjoy that face-to-face -face communion because of what Jesus has done, but also by learning from him how it was that he came 
into the presence of the Father. Coming into the presence of the Father, that is the heart of the contemplative tradition. It's a tradition that addresses our human longing for intimacy with God. Its primary action is to cultivate communion through prayer in order to enjoy God for God's own sake. And it does that by listening to my own heart in the presence of God. But if we're going to learn from Jesus, we have to take his incarnation seriously. We have to come to terms with the fact that though he was without sin, he was with human limits. Like us, he had the Holy Spirit, but he still had to learn God and learn love for God using the same things available to ordinary people that were around him, the rest of the worshipping Jewish community. Now, the prayer life of Jesus is actually uh, so uh, suffused within the Gospels, but it's sort of a little tucked away. But if you look closely enough, you'll see so many references and the way it's sort of sandwiched in between uh, parables and miracles and those great sermons. Uh, it doesn't take much to see how often he snuck off away from the crowds to spend time with his father. The way he was always sort of shooing the disciples to go ahead so he could stay behind and spend a night in prayer, setting his soul's attention on his God was a constant in Jesus' life. And we're going to touch on the love of Jesus for the scriptures in the next stream, but I want to draw your attention to one aspect, and that is uh, that from all the books that he quoted, all the, all the scripture that he quoted, it's the Psalms that he quoted the most. And the Psalms is the book of the Bible, of the Jewish Bible, that we know as the prayer book of Israel. It was Israel's prayer book. It's what they used communally to pray. And this is a book that is constantly on his lips. He memorised it, and it was part of the prayers that he prayed. And this makes perfect sense if you think about how much the Psalms help to stoke your desire for God through prayer. They speak so vividly about pining for God, using terms like panting and thirsting, to describe craving, yearning desire for God to be in his presence. So Jesus soaked up the signs. They were on his lips in his dying breath. Psalm 22, the voice of someone in extreme suffering, but so resolutely determined to do the will of God right to the very end. Here are some of the strengths of the contemplative tradition. The contemplative tradition fans our flames of our first love. It takes us away from having a very cerebral religion only. And it makes prayer not a good thing or an important thing, but the essential thing for life. And this tradition also uh, emphasizes 
is a, in a sense, a solitary life. It's not an isolated life, but it's a solitary life. And what I mean by that is that all of us have to have our own relationship with God. It's a personal journey that I have to take with the Lord. And as we've spoken in all of our talks, uh, we need to mention some of the perils of this tradition. And these, of course, are not perils that Jesus succumbed to. But for those of us who maybe are more moved in this tradition and have this sort of a shaped in this way, there can be a tendency to separate actually from the ordinary life. And it can uh, keep us from pressing social issues of our day uh, as a bit of a substitute to dodge our responsible actions. Some can be tempted into becoming mystical in a way that emphasises experience that's divorced from solid theology uh, and private party private way life with God, God and me, it can be used by someone to avoid the need for spiritual community. In conclusion, let me say that we have a destiny to be in the light of the world, but it doesn't come about by direct effort. It comes about by indirection. It happens when your attention and my attention is arrested by something so beautiful that our thoughts will shine out of us like sunbeams. And it's a process. When I think about who I was 10 or even 5 years ago, I know I've got a long way to go, but at least, at least some of my teeny things have stopped twitching and uh, my, my flames and my desires have become aligned, more aligned to God and trust is increased. I don't remember what Mrs. Lechuka looked like, but I remember how she was with us. And that is to say, she was utterly beautiful. And I believe it was because she spent so much time with her Lord, contemplating his beauty. God's not against beauty, in fact, he's for it. We were made to be radiant. It's not by looking at ourselves or our lesser desires, but by forgetting ourselves as we look at the one who is ultimately beautiful and worthy of the whole world's gaze. I have for you tonight some booklets, four passages again, and you'll see them in some of stage there and behind you, Carol, on the benches, Jesus living on a prayer, and there's some passages for you to meditate on, and some points about the contemplative tradition. So take those home and enjoy them. But I want to take us through an exercise of sanctified imagination right now. And the reason I want to do that is... That the Psalms, when the Psalms speak about God and speak about his qualities, there are Psalms that, that do speak about his qualities, sort of just as adjectives. But the Psalms so often draw us to remember 
who God is, come to face to face with who God is by remembering his specific actions in history. And so the Psalms were a way of entering into the story, the story of Israel, and recounting that history as if it was your personal history. And that's how it is for the people of God. I wasn't there physically, but that's part of my story. And I'm supposed to see it as part of my story. And I believe that Jesus, knowing that he had to recapitulate or redo, uh, relive the story of Israel, but get it right this time, I believe he entered into the details of that, those stories in a way that was vivid and powerful. And so I believe that we are called to use our imagination to encounter God, the God of Scripture, beyond just the, maybe the adjectives that we use to describe him, but to encounter him through the history of Israel, through the biblical stories that are told in him. And I think actually we have something that's kind of a little bit um, metaphysical, maybe, I don't know how to describe it, but it's to do with time and how time works. So. And the way we experience our life is sort of like a ticket tape that runs chronologically, just is sequential. Okay? But the way time works for God is that all time is, is happening all at once. And if you imagine your ticket tape of your little chronology in your life wrapping around God, for God it's all happening at the same time. Are you with me? Does that make sense? So I think, and I can't prove this, it's just my own holiness pet theory, right? But bear with me. I think it's actually really cool. I think it helps make sense. But I think what happens when we have the Spirit of God, there is a way that we can touch deeply other moments in history through our imagination in a, in a very real spiritual way. And we see this actually in the fact that in the church calendar, we keep going and reliving and entering into those sacred moments during Lent, during Easter, during Advent, during Christmas. Pentecost, we enter into that story in a profound way. But I don't think we have to leave it there. I think that we can use our imaginations to enter into God's story in profound ways at other times. And just in case that term, imagination, freaks you out a bit, I just want to make a bit of an argument for the use of that imagination. There's two types of imagination, right? The first is when you make up a story, you know, you think about a writer who writes a work of fiction and it's totally, uh, a totally the work of fiction. It's not based on any reality. That is an example of how imagination is used. But there's another way of using the imagination. The imagination can be used to image to us things that are true but that are unseen. We can image to ourselves things that are true, but that are unseen. And we do this all the time, right? Like, so if you've never been to um, Scotland, but you hear somebody describing Scotland, you image in your mind Scotland, right? It might not be perfectly accurate, it's not photographic, but it does have a link to something that is true and real, but it is an image in your mind. And I really believe that part of the capacity that we have as made in God's 
image is to use our imagination to image to our minds the things that we don't see, spiritual realities and also stories from the Bible. And you know, that's why we love watching dramas and that's why the Chosen series has been so powerful. Somebody has imagined and filled in all the details of the interactions between the disciples. Now, you know, we don't have evidence that those conversations took place. They are in a sense a work of fiction, but they're there's, there's a power in using our imagination to enter into a story. And you're better at it than you think. Because if you've ever watched a movie and gotten into it, or a story, or a book, and gotten into it, that's your imagination at work. You don't have to be a highly creative person to be able to do this. And so, on the card, you'll see um, that there are some steps to go through. But what I wanted to end with now was just and an exercise of imagination to help us come face to face with the reality of God. So just close your eyes and I'll just talk us through. I want you to imagine that you are one of the Israelites is being rescued from the, from the Egyptian slavery during the Exodus. You've come out from that place after a series of incredibly powerful events showing God's glory, his power, his love for his people. His unwillingness to let them suffer any longer under the political oppression of the Egyptians under their slavery. And so, as part of the company, a great company of your fellow Hebrews, you find yourself at the edge of the Red Sea. It's night time. But in the distance, you hear Pharaoh's army. And you feel dread, fear, incredulity that all of that effort to rescue came about just to put you in the position of being trapped. Sea on one side, army on the other. But Moses prays and he assures you, along with all the other people, that God is going to make a way. And as you lie there in camp overnight, Wondering what's going to happen, dreading the worst, you hear the washing sound of water. It's great upheaval of water moving, moving in a way that you've never heard it before. And then rumors start to spread around the camp that something weird's going on with the ocean. 
And as the sun begins to rise, and you are called to wake up and get up and go to the go to the shore, you see that the ocean has lifted up into two halves, taller than a skyscraper. And the bottom of the ocean floor is a bit murky, there's rocks, a couple of fish, dead fish here and there, but it's solid. And Moses calls you, along with all the people, to walk through this ocean as part of ways by God. And you look to one side and you can see fish swimming in this wall of water and you look to the other side and you see other things floating around in there. And you think to yourself, oh my gosh, you know, I really hope this doesn't collapse on me. But you make it to the other side. But you turn around and look, and the Egyptian army is close behind. But it's when they enter into the ocean, their floor, those walls of water that were so solid when the people of God were passing through start to crack and cascade and vanquish that army of aggressors, those predators that have been against you and all God's people. The power of Pharaoh's army. washed away and the sea settles down and it's right down and there's no one left there it's just the people of God with Moses their leader and this invisible God has proven himself and wrought this wonder. And I want you to imagine what it would be look like to feel God looking at you, speaking to your heart, saying, Didn't you know you could trust me? Haven't I proven myself and my love for you for what I did in the Exodus? This is the God we worship. This is the God who Moses saw face to face. And Jesus is the exact representation of that God, a God who is for us and who rescues us. So may God bless us as we seek to step into the contemplative stream. 
sanctifying our imaginations with his hands, patterning our lives on the 